All right, please remain standing for the book of James. I'm going to read the um, part we'll be looking at today, which is chapter 3, verses 1 through 12, I think. Give me one second, double check. Yes. All right, James 3, verses 1 through 12. My brethren, let not many of you become teachers, knowing that we shall receive a stricter judgment. For we all stumble in many things. If anyone does not stumble in word, he's a perfect man, able also to bridle the whole body. Indeed, we put bits in horses' mouths that they may obey us, and we turn their whole body. Look also at ships. Although they are so large and are driven by fierce winds, they're turned by a very small rudder wherever the pilot desires. Even so, the tongue is a little member and boasts great things. See how great a forest a little fire kindles? And the tongue is a fire, a world of iniquity. The tongue is so set among our members that it defiles the whole body and sets on fire the course of nature. And it is set on fire by hell. For every kind of beast and bird, of reptile and creature of the sea, is tamed and has been tamed by mankind. But no man can tame the tongue. It is an unruly evil, full of deadly poison. With it we bless our God and Father, and with it we curse men who have been made in the similitude of God. Out of the same mouth proceed blessing and cursing. My brethren, these things ought not to be so. Does a spring send forth fresh water and bitter from the same opening? Can a fig tree, my brethren, bear olives or a grapevine bear figs? Thus, no spring yields both salt water and fresh. All right, you may be seated. All right, so we've been looking at James chapter 2, the famous controversial text that is used by Rome and every other den of heresy to put forward the doctrine of justification by faith and works. Um, It is the center of the book. And so I've reprinted for you uh, that text with a basic. I've tried to simplify down the notes there to give you a basic sense of, okay, what does it mean? As opposed to having all the arguments as to why. Uh, So my goal was to lay out there, what does it mean? And I want you to remember that that chunk of text is the centerpiece of the book. And we are leaving out of the centerpiece. So if you go to page 6, you have the text that we're going to be going through. And you'll also find that as you go through later into the handout that I'm giving to you, uh, you will find that as you get to the end of it, I have quoted chapter 2, verses 8 through 13, with some reminders there of what the meaning of that text is. Remember, the book is structured as a chiasm. Okay, so look at the very first page that I've given to you. Remember that there's an outline there of the chiasm. 
And so you can see that as we leave the center, we're going to be repeating certain themes. And so chapter 2, verses 1 through 13 has themes that are overlapping with chapter 3, verses 1 through 12. The theme that is overlapping is the theme of division caused by hypocrisy. So verses, chapter 2, verses 1 through 13 focuses on hypocrisy manifested in partiality. Remember the rich and the poor. Chapter 3, verses 1 through 12 focuses on hypocrisy in the form of unruly speech. And so you consider a teacher and you judge teachers carefully. There's, there's the idea of judging profession and there's the idea of judging teachers. Which profession is to be judged more harshly? The profession of a teacher. And so the profession of anybody coming in is to be considered, but then there's also the idea of a teacher. And so there's two gates that we're thinking about. The gates of membership and the gates of for office. And so what we're going to get is an interesting introduction to this idea of how we should consider people who desire to teach, but also teachers themselves. And it relates to profession. Now, you remember, what we have throughout the book of James is a great emphasis on sins of the tongue. And this is going to be a sharpened point in this text. So let's uh, look at that. Go to page six of the outline. And let's look there at the text. Verse 1, chapter 3, verse 1. My brethren, let not many of you become teachers, knowing that we shall receive a stricter judgment. So, the centerpiece about a confession of faith being judged by works moves into now the desire of the one who wants to be a teacher. This is again a focus on the sin of the tongue. And the tongues of teachers are of particular importance. Those tongues have a particular responsibility. They undergo a stricter judgment, and they have greater blessing and greater cursing. We're told by the Apostle Paul in 1 Timothy that he desires an office, desires a good work. And if you desire a good work, you desire a good office, you desire more authority, you desire more authority, you're desiring to have greater responsibility. You want, to, you want to make money? Money gives you greater responsibility. You want office and honor? It gives you greater responsibility. You want ability? It gives you greater responsibility. Right? Any good gift from heaven, and every perfect gift comes from heaven, any good gift from heaven gives you greater responsibility. So every time you seek after something good, you're seeking greater responsibility. And when you get something good, you're getting a promotion. Your responsibility is to do more good now. So that's what we're to seek. The good life is the life of increasing responsibility. The good life is the life of increasing responsibility. You want to grow in gifting and grow in the use of that gifting. When you get gifting, when you get office, when you get resources, there's a greater judgment. Use it well. Verse 2, For we all stumble in many things, if anyone does not stumble in word, he is a perfect man, able also to bridle the whole body. Now this, this word perfect, teleos, it means perfect. It also means mature. It means both. And James is causing us to think about both. 
When we read this, because we're concerned about the text that came before, about the idea of justification by faith and works, right, the, the wrong understanding, the twisting of that text, we want to make sure that we don't make this into a statement that men can be perfect. James is very clear that men can't be perfect. He says if we break the law at one point, we break the law in all points. And he also teaches us here that we all sin with the tongue. So we know this. Because of this, Protestants often fail to enjoy the fullness of this text. Having beat that horse to death, I think I can focus on the other things in this text now. It's a very dead horse. Since justification is not by faith and works, and since that's abundantly clear, let's consider the other use of the word perfect or mature here. The other usage of it, I have given to you many of its usages on the next few pages. We're going to look at that. Because this is the part that we, as evangelicals, as Protestants, as Reformed people, in Western civilization, in the year of our Lord, what is it, 2023? Yeah, I know what year it is. Year of our Lord, 2023. We have a tendency towards believing what our culture teaches, which is that we should not care about things that are old. And if we believe in progress, progress is certainly not progress of the church in understanding and believing the Bible more and more. That is the misunderstanding that we have. There is progress. We ought to be progressive in the sense that we should be seeking to advance the post-millennial kingdom of the Lord Jesus Christ, establishing more and more a theonomic order. That's the kind of progressivism I'm trying to advance, and hopefully you as well. That's progress. And so if that's the case, what we should look at is what is this maturity that the man who teaches should have. We all stumble in many things. Notice that. There's a teaching of the fact that we all sin. We all stumble in many things. Therefore, we've all broken the law as a whole many times. And therefore, we should be cautious about wanting to be teachers. We should be cautious about wanting to be teachers. If anyone does not stumble in word, he is a perfect man, able also to bridle the whole body. Now, this stumbling, you can think about stumbling in terms of sinless perfection. You can also think about stumbling in terms of blamelessness. The blameless sin, but they avoid great transgressions that would bring scandal. They avoid crimes. They avoid disqualifying sins. And so when they stumble in less grievous ways, and they are confronted about it, they repent. So blamelessness and peaceableness, and the willingness to go through conflict resolution, are all deeply related The idea that a man who is willing to take correction, a man who is willing to give a just defense, who is willing to submit himself to biblical conflict resolution with biblical authority, the Matthew 18 process, going up to the church courts in Acts 15, right? We have that example of how we are to resolve conflict. There is a blamelessness. And so the mature man, not the perfect man, let's think about the mature man in the sense of the sinner who's fit to teach. Because there are sinners fit to teach. The Lord Jesus Christ selected apostles. He selected prophets and evangelists. And there's a commandment by Paul to make sure that churches are set up with a good order. 
to have officers. And so the Lord Jesus Christ provides what is needful to his church, and so he will provide those men. We are to pray that he send workers into the field for the harvest, because there's a harvest, and the workers are few. And to a certain degree, we're called to make sure there's not too many workers, not have any teachers. But we are also called to have one in ten. One in ten men are supposed to be elders. One in ten. Now, this idea, look at the notes under verse 2. Men who govern themselves well will govern their tongues well. Men who govern their tongues well will govern their lives well. So if you see somebody governing their life well, that's an indicator that they can govern their tongue well. If they govern their tongue well, but then their life is not in good order, guess what? You've judged wrongly. They don't govern their tongue well. Think about this for a second. There are many people that we walk around and we think these people govern their tongues well. We think of teachers where you can hear teachers. We can find their teaching and go, well, that's good. That's good teaching. And they don't govern their lives well. If they're not governing their lives well, they're not governing their tongues well. They might sometimes be able to put on a show. They might be able to hide a lot of the misuse of the tongue. But they don't govern their tongues well. These things are intimately related. If you're able to govern your tongue, you're able to govern your whole body. If either is missing, then both are missing. That's why, when you look at the qualifications for office in the church, you see so much about other elements of character. The elder is required to be able to teach, competent to teach. But he's required to have many other things in place. We are to bridle the whole body. And if the man does not stumble in word, he is a mature man who is able to bridle the whole body. This is a pun. This is double meaning. What's the other use of the word body? You can govern your own body, right? But what's the other body that he can govern? He can govern the church. So if he's able to govern his speech well, he's going to be able to be obedient in his words to the Lord Jesus Christ and not add to or subtract from the doctrine that has been delivered to the saints. And he's going to be able to govern his body to give a good example. So we normally think about this in terms of the sinless perfection. And that is used in Matthew 5.48, Matthew 19.21, Romans 12, 2, all of those places use the same word in reference to sinless perfection, or the completeness of the law, anyways. The Romans 12, 2 talks about the perfect will of God. So the idea that we have the whole will of God there in terms of the law, and therefore we're responsible to it. But those two texts in Matthew 5, uh, 48 talks about be perfect as your Father in heaven is perfect. That's talking about sinless perfection. Um, so, what about the idea of maturity of the word? Uh, sorry, let me, let me explain that. There's, there's three types of maturity I'm going to talk about. Three maturities are the maturity of the Word of God, the maturity of the man, the maturity of the church. Okay, the church is called to maturity, and the church has a certain level of maturity it's already reached. The Word was promised to be mature or complete, and it now is mature, which is a part of the maturation of the church, by the way. And we also have a call to only put mature men into office. 
Okay, so these are the three things that we're seeing pointed to here. The idea of the mature man. So, we are able to see the church mature because we have been given a ladder to maturity. Uh, Look at James chapter 1, verse 25, at the bottom of page 6. But he who looks into the perfect law of liberty and continues in it, and is not a forgetful hearer, but a doer of the work, this one will be blessed in what he does. The, the word perfect there is the same word used here. It's the one for, it's based on telos, the complete word. So we have the idea of the perfect law. We have a complete law. It's a mature law. There's nothing missing from it. Therefore, we can know what we ought to do. Romans 12, 2. And do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, that you may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. Right, the, good, the will of God, the law, what God commands, is good. And what God commands is not only good, but it's acceptable to Him. And it's not only acceptable to Him, but it's complete, sufficient, mature. There's nothing lacking in it. And so, that's the sufficiency of Scripture. That's the sufficiency of the commandments of God to teach us what we ought to do. That's the regulated principle of life. This idea that we should do what God commands and there's nothing else that's necessary, nothing else that we need to do. 1 Corinthians 13, verse 10, in particular, teaches us about the fact that we have the complete word now. So, Daniel 9 prophesies that there will be destruction of the temple in 70 AD, and it teaches us that the scriptures will be complete. The office of prophet and the gift of vision, revelation, will cease there. Okay, so that tells us when the completion will occur. 1 Corinthians 13, verses 8 to 13, teach us about the completion of revelation as well. Read, let's, let's go through this. Verse 8, love never fails. You could also say just love never ceases. Love never stops. It's a gift that's never going to end. But whether there are prophecies, they will fail. The word fail there, it doesn't mean that prophecies are going to not be fulfilled. Does any prophecy from the mouth of God fall to the ground void? No, it never fails. It doesn't fail in the sense that it doesn't happen or that it's not true. What's the point here? The point here is that prophecies cease. They stop. There's an end to the giving of prophecy. So love doesn't cease. But whether there are prophecies, they will cease. Whether there are tongues, they will cease. Whether there is knowledge, it will vanish away. People are going to stop knowing things? Going to like vanish into a cloud of unknowing? Will we mystically experience some sort of joy without thought? The great light of feeling? All the feels. Heaven is feeling. Unceasing feeling. False. Wrong. Knowledge doesn't vanish away as in like we stop thinking truths. The idea is the gift of knowledge, supernatural knowledge, the giving of new propositions from the mind of God stops. Verse 9, For we know in part, and we prophesy in part, but when that which is perfect, complete, mature, has come, then that which is in part will be done away. Do you see how obvious the context is partial revelation versus complete revelation? When the complete revelation comes, the partial revelation stops. When I was a child, I spoke as a child. I understood as a child. I thought as a child. But when I became a man, I put away childish things. 
For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. So verse 11. I was immature, but when I became mature, I put away the things of immaturity. What's the analogy relating to? Relating to the continuation of prophecy and tongues and supernatural knowledge. Those things pass away when we have the supernatural revelation given to us in Scripture complete. Because that's the mature version. So then people have a problem. All that's very clear. It's very obvious. It's very easy to read. And it's just plain from the context. You get to verse 12 and people freak out. For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Oh, this must be talking about heaven. What? Because we go, oh, we're going to see Jesus face to face when we get to heaven. Their eyes, their physical eyes. So that's what, this must be talking about that. So the perfect must be talking about Jesus. And so when Jesus comes, then these gifts will pass away. So let's go speak in tongues, everybody. Let's roll around the floor. Holy laughing, all these things. Pentecostalism. These are the things that get brought out. And it is nonsense. Think about this verse for a moment. For now we see in a mirror dimly what is talked about as a mirror in the Word of God. Isn't the Word of God talked about as a mirror? Didn't James talk about that? And the law of God being a mirror that we see ourselves in? So it's a dim mirror. It's a dim mirror when it's not complete. It's a dim mirror when it's not complete. You know where else is talked about as somebody talking to somebody face to face? Is when Moses spoke to God. But you know what's really funny? It actually explicitly says he didn't look at God's face because if he did, he would die. So, does it mean literally looking at his face? No, it does not. The text is talking about the idea of what it says about Moses. That God spoke to Moses as one man speaks to his friend face to face. As one man speaks to another plainly. Compared to the prophets that he gave visions and dark sayings to. Dark sayings, kind of like a dim mirror. Dark sayings. That's the idea. That's the contrast. So what is being talked about here is the perfect revelation being something that is like the plain speaking. This is a verse that helps us to understand the doctrine of the perspicuity of Scripture. Perspicuity is an unclear word that means clear. Okay, so the Scriptures are clear. They're plain. They're perspicacious. And so... When we think about the doctrine that Scripture itself is clear, understandable, this is one of the texts that helps to show us that. For now we see in a mirror dimly. When was now? When Paul wrote the book of 1 Corinthians. That's what now was for him. So if that's the case, guess what? He's in the middle of writing the Scriptures. They're not complete yet. So are we in Paul's now? Is now like the eternal now? Paul a Buddhist? We just have some like eternal now. It's not it. He's talking about the now that was now when he wrote. For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. We're in the then. We're in the then. The then is now. And so, now I know in part, Paul at that time had partial knowledge, but then I shall know just as I also am known. So if people want to say this, and they want to say, yeah, when we get to heaven, we're all of a sudden going to become God. We're going to be omniscient. It's going to be amazing. Right? Now, they don't say that. They don't say we're going to be God. They just say you'll know everything all of a sudden. If you know everything, you're God. If you know everything, you're God. Only God knows everything. That's an incommunicable attribute of God. If God could make somebody else know everything, then that would mean that God could make God. 
And that means God could be made. That means the unmade can be made. That means the eternal can have a beginning. That is not what this text is saying. This text is not saying that when you get to heaven, all of a sudden you're going to know everything. What it's saying is, (coughs) when the complete is given, then we will have the whole counsel of God. And so God will have laid out his counsel, his plan, his will, fully and completely, so that it's laid bare for us. Jesus says, you know, you're not just my servants, you're my friends, because I make known to you what I'm doing. The angels longed to look into these things. And they went for ages, not knowing. And these things have been revealed to us. Now I know in part, but then I shall know just as I also am known. That's not an assertion that we will become omniscient. It's an assertion that we will have the full counsel of God. And now abide. So here are gifts that abide, but don't end. Faith, hope, and love, these three, but the greatest of these is love. Okay, We're always going to understand and believe doctrine. Even in heaven, even in the resurrected state, we are going to continue to grow in the knowledge of doctrine. We're always going to have hope. We're always going to have a confident desire that good things are going to be fulfilled by God that he has promised. And we're always going to have love. We're always going to seek the good of God, seek the good of our neighbor, according to his law, in faith, for his glory. Love will always abide. These are gifts of the Spirit that don't end. You know what gifts of the Spirit do end? Revelation. And so when we have the complete revelation, that's when those gifts stop. So the maturity of the Word is something that we have, and that maturity of the Word is a part of the promise of the New Covenant. When we talk about being in the New Covenant, the new administration of the Covenant of Grace... One of the glories of this administration, one of the glories of the New Covenant, is that we have the whole Scripture. It's done. And having the whole Scripture means that we have a mature Word that allows the church to do its work of maturing and filling the earth. So, the maturity level of the church, let's think about this. The same text quoted right below, talks about the idea of the maturity of the church. Let's look at verse 11. When I was a child, I spoke as a child, I understood as a child, I thought as a child. But when I became a man, I put away childish things. Do you think the church should be holding on right now to the childish things of partial revelation? It should not. We have been given the mature word, and the church is called to maturity. 1 Corinthians 14.20 Brethren, do not be children in understanding. However, in malice be babes, but in understanding be mature. We are called as individuals, and we are called as a church to be mature. It's the same word in the Greek. Ephesians 4, verse 13 in particular, but we're going to read 11 to 16. And he, Christ, gave, he himself gave, gave some to be apostles, some prophets, some evangelists, and some pastors and teachers. Okay, so apostles, prophets, evangelists were given. They are done. We don't have any more. Pastor teachers are continuing office. Elders, pastors, teachers, bishops. We have that continuing office. It's the same office. 
Why are those offices giving? For the equipping of the saints, for the work of ministry, for the edifying of the body of Christ, till we all come to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to a perfect man. We're called to maturity, the perfect man, the mature man. That is, officers are given for this purpose. The work of the apostles and prophets and evangelists is done. The foundation's been laid. It's done. We do not keep relaying the foundation. It is done. What we do is we build on it. We are building up the temple. That is what is being done. We are building on the foundation. It's done. We're seeking to see the church matured to the perfect man, the mature man, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. That idea of the fullness of Christ, the the perfect man, the fullness of Christ is the fullness of what we have of the mind of Christ, the fullness of what has been revealed, the full counsel of God. That we should no longer be children tossed to and fro and carried about with every wind of doctrine by the trickery of men and the cunning craftiness of deceitful plotting. But speaking the truth in love may grow up in all things into him who is the head, Christ, from whom the whole body, joined and knit together by, every, by what every joint supplies, according to the effective working by which every part does its share, causes growth of the body for the edifying of itself in love. As every single individual grows in sanctification, it is the maturing of the body. But there's also a way in which there's a corporate maturing. And the corporate maturing is in the advance of a confessional standard and an advance of a rule of behavior. Now, that manifests itself in the church. Look at Hebrews 9. But Christ came as a high priest of the good things to come with the greater and more perfect tabernacle. The church is a more perfect tabernacle. It's a more perfect place for the dwelling of the Spirit of God. With the greater and more perfect tabernacle, not made with hands, that is, not of this creation. Not with the blood of goats and calves, but with his own blood he entered the most holy place once for all, having obtained eternal redemption. For if the blood of bulls and goats and the ashes of a heifer, sprinkling the unclean sanctifies for the purifying of the flesh, how much more shall the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without spot to God, cleanse your conscience from dead works to, the ser- to serve the living God. And for this reason he is the mediator of the new covenant by means of death, for the redemption of the transgressions under the first covenant, that those who are called may receive the promise of the eternal inheritance. The promise of the eternal inheritance we're talking about here is an increasing possession of the knowledge of God and the possession of all of the promises, the, prom- the possession of the world, the possession of this maturity, the reign of Christ manifest in the earth. These are all promises. This work that's being done that lasts. Philippians 3.16 calls us to this. It says, Nevertheless, to the degree that we have already attained, let us walk by the same rule. Let us be of the same mind. The degree that we've already attained to. What is that? It's a corporate degree of attainment. The corporate degree of attainment is captured in a confessional standard of the church and in canon law. Okay, you, you, where do you have that? Where do we have that? We have that in form of government and a directory of worship. That would be what the canon is for us. Canon law, 
in the Middle Ages was put against or over scripture or as a judge of it where the church was made to judge things. The idea of canon law is just canon, the, the Greek word right there, for a rule. It was, what's the rule that we've reached? What's the, what rule have we attained to? How far have we understood the ethic of scripture and captured it in confessional standard, in form of government, in directory of worship, or catechism as it describes how to keep the Ten Commandments? That is canon law. That is the standard the church has attained to. And we should not abandon it if it's true. We should judge it. How do we judge it? By scripture. We should judge it by scripture. The same way that a child ought to listen to the commandments of their parents and also compare them to scripture is the way that we ought to examine the ruling of fathers in the church who have come before us in councils. We should consider them. They are judged by scripture. They have no authority in themselves except when they agree with scripture. And so we assume that they are false until we can prove them. We assume they are false until we can prove them. We approach it with a skepticism. You should assume what I am teaching you from the pulpit is false unless you can prove it from the scriptures. The exercise of authority has the burden of proof. It's your duty to not just be difficult, to drag your feet like petulant children. It is your duty to search the scriptures to see if these things are so. You don't believe them unless you can prove them, and you don't reject them without doing the work of trying to prove it. That is the duty that we have towards authority that is lawful. Now, when we talk about a man, right? we talked about the word being mature or complete. We've talked about the church and the duty of maturity in the church and the progress of the maturity of the church. Now let's talk about the man, the mature man, the man who's able to use his tongue in a way where he bridles it and therefore he can also bridle the whole body. The maturity level of the man. James chapter 1, verse 4. says this, But let patience have its perfect work, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking nothing. The idea of perfect and complete, the idea of you're mature and you're full. You're mature and you're full. You see this also in Colossians, and you see this back in Ephesians. The maturing and the filling. The maturing and the filling. You're mature in understanding. You're full of knowledge, full of wisdom. You're renewed. You're transformed by the word. First Corinthians fourteen twenty, brethren, do not be children in understanding. However, in malice be babes, but in understanding be mature. In understanding be mature. There is an emphasis in the scriptures on you pursuing maturity as an individual, as well as seeking the maturity of the church. The church cannot mature unless individuals mature. The church cannot mature unless individuals mature. The advancements that occur in maturity in the church occur by mature men working to go beyond what has already been attained to. And if you want to do the work of going beyond what's been attained to, get mature to what already has. Hebrews 5, verses 12 to 14. 
For though by this time you ought to be teachers, you need someone to teach you again the first principles of the oracles of God. And you have come to need milk and not solid food. For everyone who partakes only of milk is unskilled in the word of righteousness, for he is a babe. But solid food belongs to those who are of full age. The word perfect or mature is there. Solid food belongs to those who are mature. That is, those who by reason of use have their senses exercised to discern both good and evil. They have used the word of God. They have used the milk. They have used the things that were set up for the immature to help them to grow to maturity. That's the scriptures, certainly. But God has given the office of pastor-teacher for the purpose of helping to mature the saints. And a part of how they mature, the saints, is by meeting together in councils to seek to put words in order, as Solomon says in Ecclesiastes 12, that teachers are like men who drive nails. They drive words that are well-placed. And so when you have assemblies, governors of assemblies, is what Solomon refers to in Ecclesiastes, when you have governors of assemblies putting together words in good order, that are given by one shepherd, God. How do you know if they're by one shepherd? You judge them by the scriptures. So you look at lawful churches, and you see that the lawful church put together anything to try to advance, and you judge it. Confessional statements are important. The high watermark for the church is attained to is the Westminster Confession of Faith, the larger and shorter catechisms. We look at those. Have you studied those carefully and considered if they are accurately teaching what the Word of God says. If you have not, then you are wasting your time. Because the work there in the church was done for us, for our maturing. And you have to judge it by Scripture. But if you won't look at it carefully and judge it, then you are despising lawful officers appointed by Jesus Christ and despising the work that they've done. And instead, desiring something else. So I am urging you all to be of the same rule and of the same mind and to get to the degree that we have already attained. Study them. If there's error, show it so that we can repent. That is the call. We have a confessional standard. If there's something in our confessional standard that's wrong, we are in sin saying that it is true. And we need to repent. Judge the confessional standard. If you judge the confessional standard, you understand it and are able to demonstrate it, you're mature. If you understand it and can demonstrate it, you are mature. So, Philippians 3, verses 12 to 16. Not that I have already attained, here's a more in-depth Look at this. Not that I have already attained or am already perfected, but I press on that I may lay hold of that for which Christ Jesus has also laid hold of me. What is he supposed to lay hold of? The goal. What has he been appointed for? The goal. What's the goal? The goal is the maturing of the church so that the church can be full of knowledge and the church can fill the earth so that the knowledge of God fills the earth as the waters cover the sea. That's the goal. 
Verse 13, Brethren, I do not count myself as having apprehended. But one thing I do, he doesn't think he's gotten there yet, so he's working on it. One thing I do, forgetting those things which are behind and reaching forward to those things which are ahead, I press toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. What's behind? What's behind is the good works that have already been attained to. The confessional standard already attained to. What's ahead? The maturing of the church more. The maturing of himself more and the maturing of the church more. He presses toward the goal of filling the earth with the knowledge of God. Therefore, let us, as many as are mature, there's that word in Greek, mature, perfect, have this mind. Right? We need to have the mind that's already been attained to. And if anything, if in anything you think otherwise, God will reveal even this to you. That right there is a promise. Get this. This is a promise. That's a promise that if you don't believe something that's in the Bible that has already been attained to by the church, if you study it, you will believe it. God will take those who are striving for maturity and He will bring them to maturity. That's what that promise is. God will reveal even this to you. Verse 16. Nevertheless, to the degree that we have already attained, let us walk by the same rule. Let us be of the same mind. This is about the idea of having a confessional standard of what the law requires. A form of government, a directory of worship, a covenanted uniformity. And having a confessional standard of what we believe. A covenanted uniformity. 1 Corinthians 2, verses 1-16 through talks about a good deal about knowledge but I'm going to zoom in on verse 6 for the limitations of time, and I encourage you to go read this by yourselves and to meditate on it. We're supposed to take the doctrine that has been revealed to us and we focus on it, and then we move from what's already been attained to to give more to the mature. Verse 6, However, we speak wisdom among those who are mature, not the wisdom of this age, nor of the rulers of this age, who are coming to nothing. But we speak the wisdom of God and a mystery, the hidden wisdom which God ordained before the ages for our glory, which none of the rulers of this age knew, For had they known, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. So what we have here is the idea of talking about the things that are more mature amongst those who are mature. And that is the work of those who have reached maturity working to get more maturity. So if you are not mature, your goal is to come to a place where you have reached the maturity the church has already attained to, And then once you've reached that, your goal is to work to help to advance the maturity of the church further. Page 10. Colossians has two verses I want to read that have this this word. Him we preach, warning every man and teaching every man in all wisdom that we may present every man perfect in Christ Jesus. There's that word perfect or mature. Colossians 4.12 Epaphras, who is one of you, a bondservant of Christ, greets you, always laboring fervently for you in prayers that you may stand perfect and complete in all the will of God. Perfect and full. Mature and full. This is a theme of Scripture. 
mature and full. Mature has to go back, you go back to Genesis and you talk about the idea of having form and you talk about being filled. There's void and emptiness. There's no form, there's formlessness and void. There is maturity, a form, and there's filling. That is, we are to replace the formlessness and emptiness with form and fullness. And the church works together in that work. We are not an isolated congregation separated from the grand stream of the people of God. The city of God goes back for us to Adam. The work that has been done since Adam, we are called to value. And so we should not abandon it. Not a single proposition that has come from the mouth of God and has been attained by the church should be abandoned by us. If we flee at the point of battle, we are cowards. You can stand your ground all you want until the enemy gets there, and if you run when the enemy gets there, you are a coward. We fight over every proposition that comes from the mouth of God, and every proposition that the church has already attained should not be abandoned. 1 John talks about children, fathers, young men. Children, fathers, young men. This is, I think, a very valuable text. And the little children, the babes, are the ones that take in the milk. The young men are the ones that are starting to work through that discerning, that chewing. You, you need to get to a place where you have signs of maturity because you have understanding of what the church has attained to, to a good point where you can work with it. And the fathers are those that reach maturity and are able to work to add and to disciple according to the same standard. If you disciple and you don't have a shared standard, you know what you bring? You bring chaos. You bring confusion. You bring disorder. Are we going to keep the Lord's Day or not? Are we going to sing psalms or not? Are we going to teach Calvinism or Arminianism? What are we going to do? Right, so what you do is you have a standard. You have a standard and the scriptures either say it or they don't. First Timothy 3, Titus 2, these are texts that I want to encourage you to study and meditate on deeply because that's what the mature man looks like. So continuing with James, verse 3. Indeed, we put bits in horses' mouths that they may obey us, and we turn their whole body. Look also at ships. Although they are so large and driven by fierce winds, they are turned by a small very small rudder, wherever the pilot desires. Even so, the tongue is a little member and boasts great things. So here it's saying, look, for the individual, if you can't govern your tongue, then you shouldn't govern other people, right? If you can't govern your body, you can't govern your tongue. If you can't govern your tongue, you can't govern your body. And there's a danger for the tongue. In the metaphor of the church body, who's the tongue? A pastor is the tongue. The pastor can turn the whole church. You can turn it bad directions. An elder is a little member who boasts great things. And so there is a great danger in having bad teachers. There's also a great blessing in having good teachers. It's a great blessing having good teachers. And so when you think about that, and you think about what, where will our ship go? Where will the horse go? Are there ancient paths that are well-worn? Do you want to 
take the well-worn paths until you get far along the way and only start pioneering a new road when you have to? Or do you want to start from the very beginning just digging new roads right alongside the right ones? Is that more or less efficient than just traveling on the roads that are already made? Confessional standard, if it's right, is a road well-worn. It is paved and even a highway for the righteous to go along. And so we should be careful to not abandon the work that's already been done. The ability to control the tongue and the body is applied to governing self and to the church. Continuing, so how great a forest a little kindle a little fire kindles. See how great a forest a little fire kindles. And the tongue is a fire, a world of iniquity. Right? You can, as a person, just in general, you can cause a lot of fire and destruction with your tongue. But if you're a governor of the assembly, if you're an elder, how much can you destroy? What souls can you send to hell? What wickedness can you encourage? What wickedness can you wink at? What can you do to destroy good work and to ruin lives? The tongue is so set among our members that it defiles the whole body and sets on fire the course of nature. It destroys the church and it can destroy the way we're designed. False words can destroy your humanity. It makes you become less reasonable. It makes you become like a brute beast who's unreasoning when you have darkness instead of light. And it is set on fire by hell. Gehenna. This word is, is hell. This one's hell. This isn't Hades. This one's hell. It's set on fire by hell. If you are a reprobate, your tongue will burn. If you are a false teacher, you will burn. That's the idea. There's the curse. A stricter judgment. And so this idea of speaking falsehood and its destructive power, it is a damnable thing. For every kind of beast and bird, of reptile and creature of the sea is tamed and has been tamed by mankind. But no man can tame the tongue. It is an unruly evil full of deadly poison. No man has the power to do this. No man can perfectly tame his own tongue except for the Lord Jesus Christ. We will in the resurrection. We will in the glorified state. But here, we won't perfectly do it. But I'll tell you what. The Lord Jesus Christ, as the King of the Church, will subdue the tongues of His teachers to speak the truth and to cause the truth to be advanced. He tames it enough that there will be victory. He tames it enough so that it becomes more and more mature by degrees. He makes it so that there are men who are able to speak the truth. And though it is unruly, He subdues all of His enemies and ours to Himself. He is a ruler of the unruly and brings them to bear. He causes them to come to heal. He does that. He causes your tongue to be brought into subjection to his reign. You know how he does it? By giving you words that go into your soul. They take root there and they cause much fruit to go forth, including from your tongue. Verse 9. With it we bless our God and Father and with it we curse men who have been made in the similitude, the likeness of God, the image of God. Out of the same mouth proceed blessing and cursing. My brethren, these things ought not to be so. 
Does a spring send forth fresh water and bitter from the same opening? Can a fig tree, my brethren, bear olives or a grapevine bear figs? Thus no spring yields both salt water and fresh. Now at first you kind of go, what's the deal here? I mean, can't you be a person who speaks good words and then bad words? I mean, can't that happen? Doesn't happen. The point is, this is not what should happen. The point is it's contrary to our nature. It's contrary to our design. We are designed to be good. We're designed to be good. We're designed to glorify God. We're made to be knowers of God and showers of God. And so if that's the case, then we're acting contrary to the design that God has given. When we bless God and in the next moment give an unjust curse to men. Read the Psalms. There's lots of curses. Read Jesus. He curses a lot of people. Is the problem an absolute that if you bless God, you should never under any circumstances curse men? No. What is the point? The point is, you shouldn't bless God and then unjustly curse others. We are commanded to curse people when we excommunicate them. We are commanded to kick the dust off our feet if you have to leave an assembly. If all of a sudden a false gospel is being preached here at Puritan Reformed Church, if there is no reformation after going through the Matthew 18 and Acts 15 process, if there is no hearing, no willingness to have public process, it's your duty to leave in protest and kick the dust off your feet and ask for God to bring curse on the assembly that we would repent. That's your duty. But to do it unjustly, to leave unjustly, to kick the dust off your feet unjustly, Brethren, it should not be so. You bless God with your mouth, and then you curse unjustly. What are you? Salt water or fresh? Fig tree or an olive tree? Bitter waters or sweet waters? Now, we should be all good rather than partially good. It pollutes our witness and calls into question what kind of purity our source of witness has, the Word of God. When we bless God and then curse men unjustly, what that does is it calls our testimony into, witness, into question. It calls the witness for God into question. So that's the effect. Now, James here is alluding also to a teaching from his brother, the Lord Jesus Christ. Look at Matthew 7, verses 15 to 21, 23 there. Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly they are ravenous wolves. Sheep's clothing, the appearance of being Christians. They have a profession. You will know them by their fruits. Now, when we hear fruits, we think good works. Guess what he's not saying right here? Good works. What he's saying is judge them by their doctrine. Watch. Prophets, what's the fruit of a prophet? The words of their mouth. Do men gather grapes from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? Even so, every good tree bears good fruit, but a bad tree bears bad fruit. A good tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a bad tree bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. That remind you of Gehenna? Therefore, by their fruits you will know them. So first, prophets, you judge them by their prophecy. Is their prophecy in alignment with the scriptures or not? That's the first thing. Verse 21, 
Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, shall enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father in heaven. What he's saying here, Jesus is teaching us, you know, a profession of faith is not sufficient for righteousness. You know what's sufficient for righteousness? Perfect, perpetual obedience to the law of God. So guess what happens? Guess what happens? If you plead your works to God, guess guess what Jesus is going to do? Let's watch. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, shall enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father in heaven. Many will say to me in that day, Lord, Lord, have we not done this good work and that good work and other good works? Notice that? That's what they say, right? Haven't we prophesied in your name, cast out demons in your name, and done many wonders in your name? Anybody hear a prophet? Anybody here cast out a demon? Anybody done a wonder or a miracle recently? These works better than your works? More impressive? Don't plead your works. And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. When you appeal to the law and you're a sinner, guess what you're doing? You're trying to make the law keepable. You're destroying the law. You're antinomian. You're against the law. You are bearing witness against the law and saying God's standards are false. You're saying, I kept it well enough. Let me in. False prophets principally will teach a false gospel. You judge prophets by their gospel. You judge prophets by what they teach. And Jesus is teaching us that if they teach another gospel, guess what? They're not going to make it in. So you shouldn't let them in your pulpit. We've reached the end of the section. The next section relates, as the whole chiasm does. We'll stop there. Um, and we'll show the, some of the more connections later. Um, I'm going to pause comments, questions, objections from the voting members and those with speaking rights. Mr. Cordova? So, as a corporate body, as a church, the way we take hold of those propositions is by putting them into a confessional standard. We covenant to them. Okay, so our church covenant of our confessional standard, we have adopted the Westminster Confession, the larger catechism, and the shorter catechism, and we've adopted the directory of worship. Those are places where we believe, not, not that they're infallible, right? Not that they are of their own authority, incapable of erring, but we believe they are without error, and that they accurately communicate what the scriptures teach. Any point where we think they're in error, we should abandon it. We should repent of it. Uh, we have a history of that. We had the American Confession, we repented of that, and adopted the original. Right? That's part of our history as a body. So, um, so that, that is how. And then, we don't make it a dead letter. Right? You guys know it, you learn it, you know it well, and you judge whether that's being taught, and you make sure that the, the that wholeness is being taught. I have a, a teaching series through the whole Westminster Confession. If you haven't listened to it, listen to it. You want to mature? Do that. Go through it. You want to mature? Go through that. And when you have done that, judge it. Judge if the confession's right. Judge if I'm misrepresenting it or twisting it. And if I am, hold me accountable. Bring charges. 
So that's how, and on an individual level, what you do is, on an individual level, you seek to learn what the scriptures teach from the work of the pastor teachers that has occurred before us, and to quickly get matured, and you seek to remember it, to organize it in your own head, and you seek to learn from the organizing work of the pastors that have come before us, and you seek to judge them and be able to demonstrate them. So, corporate, confessional standard, personally, using the confessional standard to, 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 to get matured and to be able to demonstrate those things, or to be able to demonstrate why we need to repent. That's, that's how. Mr. Rodriguez? Absolutely. Um, Hades is the place of the dead before the resurrection. Um, it is a compartment, uh, sorry, it is a compartmentalized thing. There are two compartments. There is paradise or Abraham's bosom for the righteous, and there is the place of torment for the reprobate. And the place of torment is separated from paradise. And so we, are, we go there, those are the holding cells where we await the judgment. We're receiving what's due to us justly in those two places, either by the merits of Christ or by our own merits. And if you're getting what's by your own merits, you're in torment, right? And if you're getting what's due to Christ's merits, you're in paradise, awaiting the resurrection. And the resurrection results in greater torment for the reprobate and greater blessing for the elect. And there are some who have been resurrected already, um, and those people like Christ, who was already resurrected, uh, are not in that place they are in heaven and so does that make sense yeah. so eventually we'll be in earth together in the resurrected state is where everyone after the general resurrection will be uh, a reprobate I can't tell you where they're going to be yet I can't I have got to study that further uh, but they will be resurrected and they'll be somewhere thank you Mr. Silver Thank you, yeah. So church planting should still occur. Um, and so what we do is we commission men to do evangelism, but they don't fill the office of evangelist. The office of evangelist is um, either, very specifically, uh, the historians that were given inspiration by the Holy Spirit to write the Gospels, or they are those who were essentially prophets, prophetic gifted people who were sent into Gentile territories to take the Gospel. Um, and so some people argue that Timothy, for example, who was sent to do the work, or Titus, that they would be evangelists. So I am, I am uncertain as to whether it is only limited to the writers or whether it is inclusive of that broader group. Um, but I am confident that it is a revelatory office. And that as a revelatory office, it's associated with the new covenant. And that as a revelatory office, it has ceased. And so the office of elder, we have qualifications for, whereas the office of evangelist, we have no qualifications for how to fill it. And so we have no way of knowing from the law of God how we should fill that office, and therefore it would be unfitting for us to, without warrant, seek to fill the office. And so uh, we should, however, send men out, elders, two or three witnesses, to go plant a church and evangelize in a place. Thank you. All right. Let's pray. Father, we ask that you would mature us 
you would help us to not have many teachers, but to have the right number of teachers, mature teachers, men who can bridle their own tongues, who can govern themselves well, who can speak the truth in season and out of season. We ask that you would help us to be mature, that you would care us, you would help us to care about being mature in the faith. Father, we ask that you would cause us to use the work of pastor teachers that have come before to take the ancient paths, to take the highways that have been laid out, and to not despise what has been done before us. And that we would be able to work to advance beyond. We ask that you would make us humble, that we might grow quickly, and make us bold, that we would not shirk from our duties of going beyond what has already been attained to. We ask that you would help us to pursue the upward call to the glory of your Son. We pray this in the name of your Son. Amen.